0: welcome to the emerald city hockey podcast join rj and dylan as they discuss each week's seattle kraken news and top stories from around the league
1: hey everybody and welcome back to another episode of the emerald city hockey podcast rj this is a brutal week of getting back to kraken hockey
0: yeah, sure was. I mean, you know, the losses just keep coming and it's, it's gotten us kind of just at a loss for words, you know, especially, you know, kind of at the end of the last post game. it's It's been rough. Yeah, and it's, it's crazy because it's like, did we watch like the same game three times? <laughs> just, sure felt like it. Yeah,
1: just a team that struggles with obviously scoring, but maybe struggling somewhat with motivation and effort level at times, uh, certainly struggling. Big struggles with momentum, not, Mm -hmm. not fans of momentum at all. Definitely want to get rid of that as soon as they have any, which I, I, I've said it on multiple post games now all through the week. I have never seen a team do that before.
0: Like, like it's, it's just unbelievable. To know that it's coming. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the players even acknowledged it. Larson talked about, you know, we, we've have talked about it, you know, we're not, we're trying not to get scored on here. Uh, and and yet it continues to happen. And also, you know, for, for Haxtell to talk about that after the game and, and say, this is pretty far down the list of things we need to address. And to probably be right about that. I know. It's That that was really
1: a thing. Because like at first, yes, reading that comment for the first time, it's like, okay, that's not ideal. But then if you think about it, it's like, you know, probably right. Because yes, giving up a goal after you score is a big problem. But if you're already, you know, down three or four, or you're not shooting the puck at all, uh, those are maybe bigger problems <laughs> on top of it all. Um, but we will, for sure, get into all that. Um, format will be a little different this week. We're not really going to go game by game because those games all kind of bled together. Um, we're going to talk about a lot of different, you know, questions that we've been seeing both in the post games we've been getting, seeing on Twitter, other people have been asking. gonna dive into all that as it relates to the Kraken, but real quick, first off, we have two key announcements for the Patreon moving forward. Um, First one will be what the live game commentary streams will be for this month. Uh, Unfortunately, we only got the one in last month because that Vancouver game got pushed and weren't quite able to reschedule it. Um, So for this upcoming month, January, January 10th, The game against Colorado, it is at 6 p.m., so we're hoping people can join us kind of after work on the West Coast. Uh, Hopefully you'll have time to, you know, commute back and all that stuff. So January 10th against Colorado is going to be the first uh, live game commentary. And then on the 30th against the Rangers, and that is a 10 a.m. game, so kind of a nice, fun, low-key Sunday matinee game. Hoping, uh, you know, people will be able to join us for that one as well. So again, the 10th and the 30th, those are going to be the two live streams for this month and then for everybody else who's not a patron we will still of course have post game live after both of those games the other uh announcement we want to make for the patreon subscribers is that i will be doing uh scouting report videos for this year's upcoming draft class we're going to start that this month of course with shane wright can't can't start anywhere but with shane wright so that's going to start sometime this month i don't know exactly when yet i'm going to start working on the video this week Um, so it'll probably be a week or two after that. And then I'm going to release one of those a month, every month. And, um, what's going to happen is we will release those to the Patreon subscribers first. And then the next month when I release the following one, that original one is going to go up for everybody on YouTube. So if you're a Patreon subscriber, you're going to get access to the video a full month in advance. And then obviously, you know, through Patreon, you can ask questions about it to me. We can talk about it, um, you know, you'll get a lot of time where uh, we can interact about it and, and really focus on it uh, with you before it kind of goes out to everybody. But uh, that's going to be the case moving forward. Again, Shane Wright will be the first one. You'll know kind of in advance of when the video is going to come out once I have a better time frame as I start really putting it together. Uh, right now, this is just you know what the plan is. Uh, so those are both exciting announcements. Wanted to get those out there. Again, if if you're interested in joining the Patreon, you know, we've got links to it kind of everywhere on social medias and stuff. If you're watching this on YouTube, this podcast, the link will be in the description. If you're watching any of our post game lives, the link's in the description. So um, you should have no problems finding it. All right. With that out of the way, RJ. First question when it comes to the Kraken because we've got a couple here. Uh, one of the things we still see so much of, and it and it rightfully so, is related to are the Kraken's struggles a coaching or a system thing? Mm-hmm. And you know, I, I totally get it. Hackstall, he wasn't necessarily the most revered coach when the Kraken hired him. Definitely came out of left field for everybody, I think. Uh, that being said, I, I don't think it's been terrible, but We've talked a lot last week and through several post games this week about his style of coaching and how he's more of a, a developmental coach, and that there are other styles of coaching. We saw one last night, in Bruce Boudreaux, very different. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and I think it would be good to start off this question just kind of explaining the three different types of coaching styles, at least as as I see them. Uh, right. And and you and I have talked about it some. So to start off, we'll talk about a coach like Hackstall, a developmental coach, and really what that means. And and ultimately what that means is these are coaches that focus on working with players and bettering them as players individually. And so last night I, I started on this a little bit on the postgame live. When you look at Jeremy Lauzon, right, he was playing really poorly at the beginning of the year. There was a lot of issues, but we've all been talking about how far along he's come as the year's gone on. He's gotten a lot better His positioning's gotten better. His decision-making's gotten better. Uh, He's kind of opening up offensively at times. He's improving a lot. Will Borgen, being a young, inexperienced defenseman, has come in and played really, really well. Hayden Fleury, arguably playing his best hockey at times here with the Kraken. And then guys like Ryan Donato, who probably would not be in the NHL right now if the Kraken didn't exist, and he looks like he totally belongs in the NHL potentially, you know, a, a middle six guy, maybe even a top six guy at times. Uh, he just looks like a completely different player from what we've seen at some of his other stops along the way, certainly from a productivity standpoint. And I think a lot of that has to do with Hackstall and his system for developing players, and especially young players, and working on them on what some of their flaws are, what they're struggling with, bettering those, and then bettering them as individual players as a whole. And I think that that's really important, and we see it in those individual performances. What you run into with a developmental coach is they spend a lot of time focusing on developing those individual skills and individual players, putting a lot more onto the team as a whole from a motivational standpoint and from a kind of a responsibility standpoint. So they're not going to micromanage a game a developmental coach. And we see that from Hackstall, you know, he's not on the bench trying to talk to anybody really. Um, He's not going to be tweaking things a ton in game. Yes. Obviously everybody changes lines around. if They're trying to get something going or whatever, Uh, but you're not going to be making like big systematic changes in the middle of a game and, and trying to implement anything like that. That's just not the style of this kind of coach. So you put things like motivation onto the team you put things like, uh, certainly personal motivation, it's more of an idea of you as a player are a professional. This is your job. So it's on you to go out there and be motivated and play hard and you know execute whatever it is we as a team are trying to do because it is your job. Um, I understand that a lot. Obviously, they are professionals. They are getting paid to do this. It makes sense that you would say that, okay, you've got to you know, do your job and you've got to show up and you've got to do X, Y, and Z. However, as with any job or any job force, workforce, for people to do their best job, certainly consistently, they have to have two things. They have to be happy. So you kind of got to keep them happy and, and, and work with them in that sense. And, you know, they need to want to do their job. Like they need to enjoy it. They need to be motivated. It's, it's just a fact of life. It's how human beings are. And so having a coach that's going to just kind of put off some of that motivational stuff and just say like, well, it's your job. You just got to do it. I'm going to focus on making you the best person at your job. And then it's on you from there to just kind of take the skills I'm going to give you and run with it. You run into problems, and and I think that that's showing with the Kraken right now is they come out flat sometimes. Certainly they'll start games slow, at times, and uh, you know certainly this week with the whole we're gonna give up a goal right after we score kind of thing, that's a motivational thing. That's that's a developmental coach not necessarily wanting to micromanage it, not wanting to get involved with the players in that way, um, just kind of putting it on them, and we're seeing that. That that is the downside of a coach like that. For all the good and all the, you know, uplifting aspects for players individually, you struggle here. And that's certainly something that served him well coaching college hockey, right? Like, that's how you want coaches in, you know, major, junior, college, all the way down to the squirt level, right? Like, that's all we were ever trying to do at the squirt level. It's not about winning championships when they're nine. You're
0: just trying to make them better players, teach them the game, all that kind of stuff. But maybe and there's yes. so much development going on at that age yeah, level exactly. too that whoever's going to be able to develop the best is going to also win the most games yes. as well. Yeah. Um, so that's that's the hack stall approach and that's that
1: that developmental style of coaching. One of the other systems and this is what I think Boudreaux kind of falls into is yes they're they're more strategic when it comes to having a system and they're going to work on the system and they're going to micromanage their system kind of game to game. But ultimately a coach like Boos Boudreaux. And I, could, I, I tried. I could not think of a better way of, of saying it, but they motivate with fear. Right. <laughs> and it's all about I'm going to make your life a living hell and I'm going to yell at you and I'm going to call you out if you screw up. If you don't do something right, I'm going to make sure you know about that and I'm going to do it in front of the team. And so I'm going to essentially use peer pressure and, you know, you're not wanting to disappoint me as an authority figure. And I'm going to use all that to make sure that you're giving it your all. And you know what? It, it totally works. It certainly works when that player is that kind of coach is put into a new situation like we're seeing in Vancouver Like that is exactly kind of what this Vancouver Canucks team needed was they needed somebody that was going to really light that fire under them. And uh, Boudreau seems to have done it, obviously. Mm -hmm. But where you run into issues with a coach like this and why me and RJ weren't exactly like, yes, this is the answer for the Kraken is uh, certainly come playoff time. Because what you run into is teams in the playoffs will kind of quit on coaches like Boudreau because at the end of the day, you're just yelling at them. And at some point the, the the threat level goes away. Cause, you know, it's, at some point you just recognize, well, I'm a I'm a professional. I'm a grown ass man, you're talking to me like this. I make more money than you, you're talking to me like this, right? Like <laughs> like at, at some point it's it's it, it loses its effectiveness. But especially in the playoffs, you need to help get guys kicked into that extra gear. You need to push them through the fatigue of having just played a full season and now having to sacrifice their bodies more than ever before on a deep playoff run, and just yelling at them or calling them out when they make a mistake is not going to do that, and that's why we tend to see these coaches fail in the playoffs. Very successful in regular season, horrible when it comes to playoff track record, and we see that with Bruce Boudreau, wonderful regular season coach, has only made one conference finals appearance. That's it. Think of all those amazing teams he has coached, one conference final. So obviously it is not a recipe for success come playoff time. The third kind of coach are the pure motivators and the, like, team guys. Like, we're all in this together, and I'm just going to make sure everybody's feeling good all the time. And if everybody's feeling well, they're going to play well, and we're going to win together. And the 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 top person who popped into my head as a former Penguins fan was Dan Bilesma. And, mm. yes, you could argue he's a, somewhat of a developmental coach, too, with all of his AHL experience and all of that but really at the end of the day what he did with the penguins was he was just a pure motivator and he came in at a time he made them feel good they go on they win that first Stanley Cup with him and it it does work again kind of for a time because you're you're working with everybody everybody's feeling good they they're then playing well they're performing at their best You get over losses really easy. You don't kind of get into bad streaks. You can keep winning streaks going, kind of, because everybody's really feeling it and getting excited. And we certainly saw that with those Penguins teams, right? They would go entire months without losing a hockey game. Absolutely incredible what they were able to do. But the problem with those kinds of coaches is they're absolutely the last coach to make a change if a change is needed, whether it's a player personnel change or a system change, because they've been successful just from motivating their way out of it. We're just going to positive energy our way out of whatever problem is going on because that's what works for them. And that's just what their style is. And at the end of the day, there are times where other teams are going to figure out your best players, they're going to figure out your system, and you need to be able to make changes. And those kind of pure motivator coaches, they tend to make those changes way too late. And that's what ends up costing them their jobs, is that, you know, at some point, you have to be, um, you have to adjust tactically, you have to make some systematic changes, you have to play smart hockey, you can't just you know, make sure everybody's feeling good all the time. It's just not enough, uh, and so those are, at least in my opinion, like the three styles of coaching, and and the positives and the minuses, and they all have positives, they all have minuses, and so it's it's a constant balance of looking at the team you have put together, what you think is is good for that team in that moment. What you think, you know, what your idea is if you're the GM or the president of Hockey Ops, whoever it is that's making the coaching hiring decision. It's, yes, you're looking at your roster, seeing who's going to work best, and you're, you know, generally you're probably also predisposed to, like, one of those types of personalities better, just as someone you're going to have to be working with at the end of the day. That's what I think a lot of it comes down to. Who your friends are. It's hockey. Let's be real. It's all about who knows who and who was drinking buddies with so-and-so back in the day. That's ultimately what decides all of this, unfortunately. So that's where we're at is we have Hackstall, he's a developmental coach. We're seeing the benefits of that as far as players that maybe were not as successful before being more successful now. Players improving as the as the season has gone on, but the team as a whole is really struggling with motivation, with fire. They're they're coming out flat. They've continually come out flat. They can't hold leads. That is a problem. So kind of real quick, RJ Before we move on, first off, what do you think of that assessment? Do you agree, disagree with anything? And, um, you know, is it a mistake for the Kraken to have taken this kind of approach where it's we wanted to bring in maybe some younger players in the expansion draft and we want to focus on building our own prospects and have a guy like Haxtell, even if it means they're going to just be nights where the team is just not going to be there from an effort level standpoint?
0: Well, first of all, I really like that assessment, and this is something that we, you know, we've talked about a little bit. We've, you know, kind of developed this idea of the different types of coaches, and, um, you know, funny enough, I, I think even we were thinking about this independently. I was, mm-hmm. you know, talking to my girlfriend who was, uh, you know, asking about like, well, is there a different type of coach you go after? How many types of coaches are there? And I kind of arrived at three as well. Um, and yeah, it's it's I think a good way of thinking about it. And you know, as far as the Kraken are concerned, whether this was the right uh you know the right way to go about things. It's tough because one of the factors um that you didn't mention about uh you know which is the best fit for a given team you talked about it, kind of the way it's built, what kind of coach they had before. Mm-hmm. Um and oftentimes you it's very rare that you'll see the same type, you know, back to back when things aren't working. Often guys need a different type of voice. And that's so difficult with an expansion team because You've got 30 different picks that you've made that, you know, all had different types of coaches that they were working with, you know, in most other situations, you have an entire team or, you know, most of a team that's all had the same voice, the same type of coach, you know, that's been trying to motivate them for the last however many years. And you can kind of use that to see, okay, what does this group need? I don't know how you do that realistically with an expansion Mm -hmm. team. So that makes it difficult as well. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, as for a development coach, I don't mind that in general with an expansion team. But I think the biggest problem is that you don't necessarily have a team full of young players, you know, that need that kind of development. I think it's kind of the roster construction isn't a fit, and we can get into that a little bit more later. But you know, you talk about the young guys getting better. You mentioned, you know, Jeremy Lausanne. You look at Will Morgan. I think uh, Morgan Geeky's in that category. Mm-hmm. You know, Ryan Donato's in that category. But Aside from those guys, is there really anyone else? I mean, Hayden Flurry, maybe. Uh, But, you know, this is a roster that's majority guys who are, you know, 28, 29, 30. And at that age, generally as a player, you kind of are what you are. There's not a whole lot of extra development. There's little bits around the edges, but, you know, those aren't really the prime development ages. And I just think that the roster isn't constructed for a development coach to do the best, given where these players are at kind of in their competitive prime
1: thousand percent agree with that and and i think that's where the idea of the kraken looking at this long term comes in is because that to me is the ultimate thing that signaled okay this is as ron francis was saying two three five year plan kind of thing and i think that's what ultimately landed them with hackstall was they felt he was going to be the best fit developing the young guys they take in the expansion draft, but then also the draft picks that they're going to be bringing in, the Maddie Beniers, the Riker Evans, whoever they get with seemingly a high draft pick this year. And so it's, it's again, maybe not what we wanted as fans, not what we wanted to be covering, that's for sure. It's, it's always better mm-hmm. to cover wins than, than cover these tough losses from a media standpoint. But it does seem like this fits at least with what they were telling us. It's it so in that sense it's it's come as a surprise but maybe it shouldn't have um, yeah and so but and and I can take solace in the fact that it at least seems to be on plan but yes you can argue whether or not that plan was the best plan right yeah <laughs> yeah I know but as far as it being just to, before we finish the coaching thing as far as it being a system problem I've seen a lot of people ask the question about you know oh they're not changing anything they're not changing anything. And I think that that's a little misguided just because the result has been the same. But watching the Kraken play from a system standpoint, their system has changed already three times this year. They are drastically changing how they play both offense and defense and transition. Like, they have changed a lot as the season's gone on. Right now, they're trying to be a perimeter team, but they're trying to be a perimeter team that doesn't shoot, which really makes no sense to me, but that's kind of a separate issue. I think that's something that more so has to deal with the players than the system. But I do think we've seen lots of different systems. We're seeing them be a a perimeter team in the offensive zone. Right now, we're seeing them be more aggressive with defensemen in the defensive zone and have the forwards cover for that more. That seems to be the thing they're trying. Um, So I will say... I don't think it's fair to criticize Haxtell and the coaching staff for not changing anything. It They have been changing things. The criticism should come from maybe you're not changing in the right directions given you're still losing all the time.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like you said, changes, you know, they have made changes systematically. And, you know, we talk about, oh, it's the same thing happening over again. In these little stretches it is where the little adjustments aren't being made. But overall, I mean, you look at some of the problems they were having earlier this season, you know, with, um, you know, their defensive coverage. It is totally different now than what it is. Mm -hmm. Still problems arising, but they're different problems overall than maybe, you know, 10, 15 games ago. You know, it's another type of problem, but at least they're trying to change. It's not just the same thing over and over again. As much as it feels like that after this week. Yes, and it's... You know,
1: again, it's just like one of those quirky things about this team is that they can change and not somehow change what they're doing. Okay, so now, RJ, let's shift focus a little bit away from coaching and more, uh, you know, front office, managerial stuff, roster construction.
0: Yes, my favorite. (laughs) Yeah, I know.
1: Both of ours to some extent. Big question asked, and going around on Twitter today, were the Kraken just too analytics-focused at the expansion
0: draft? Yep. And of course, courtesy of Kevin Kurz, mm-hmm. who familiar with because he covered the Sharks for a long time, so I've seen a lot of his stuff. He uh, decides to set Twitter ablaze today. Uh, says, uh, at what point are we allowed to discuss the Kraken seemingly overvaluing analytics, thereby resulting in their bungling the expansion draft? Or maybe their analytics team just isn't very good. Yeah, and we've talked some about the expansion draft. You
1: and I are a little bit split about how the the Kraken expansion draft went. I think we both see areas where it could have improved. I I'm I tend to defend it maybe more so than most, and that could be on me. I could be in the wrong there. I don't I don't entirely know. It's always hard with things like this, like woulda shoulda coulda type things. But from an analytics standpoint, Generally, you and I are both in favor of using analytics. We do not think that they are the boogeyman that some traditional people seem to think that they are. Um, but it is an interesting question thinking about it, given that you're when you look at the analytics for all these players that you then take in the expansion draft, it is it does very much come down to the system that they were in before. Like It's not just like, oh, this player is good analytically. If the system they were in was built to make them good in that way, and then you put them into a different system, you cannot expect the same
0: results. And I feel like that's maybe where the question lies in all of this. Right. And that is an area where, you know, you'd like to say the analytics, you know, obviously those numbers don't always tell the whole story. You still have to, you know, give them context. Because all you know, those numbers on a page, those graphs, you know, they still require context to fully understand them. And I mean, anyone, you know, who who deals with that sort of thing will tell you that, um, you know. And and that's what we've seen. But that's an area that maybe wasn't you know looked at quite enough or in the right way by the Kraken. I would say. I mean, as far as the expansion draft process, I, I'm I will be pretty darn critical of it. I I mm-hmm. just think you know because because I think Kerr says you know. They, they bungled the expansion draft, and I don't think that in itself is an unfair assessment. Um, I think, uh, let's see, I mean, I look at, like, Thomas Drantz, you know, uh, responding to KERS. You know, they didn't use the expansion process correctly, period. But then he adds that's not really the purview of the analytics department. I, I agree. I don't think they used the expansion process properly. I could go, you know, further into detail of why, you know— making trades to take advantage of the flat cap, all that sort of thing, which they did none of, no side deals, all of that stuff. As far as the picks that were made, though, and the players that were targeted, which, you know, that's more, I guess, the purview of the analytics department within that process, I thought they did okay.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's the
1: there's the ones that still stand out. JVR, Max Domi, mm-hmm. right? Like, there's a couple of those. Again, I think... I don't know how much different that would have changed anything for this team, realistically. Uh, I saw there were still people, you know, banging on about they didn't draft Carey Price. Like, that would not have fixed their goaltending problems.
0: No, and and I don't think anyone who's truly serious about this sort of thing, you know, I think that's just something, you know, for some of the media and some fans to have fun with. I don't think anyone who's serious was actually thinking about that. No, but, uh, you know...
1: I, I, I'm okay with them leaning on the analytics there. I do think that you can be critical about the lack of side deals and the lack of taking advantage of the flat cap, but I do think to some extent a lot of it came down to other NHL GMs for the first time in history learned from past experience, and they, they were not afforded some of the same opportunities that Vegas had. Because like, I think whether it was just for teams planning on the expansion draft with Seattle, which I certainly think was a lot of it, or teams also planning on the flat cap for the next several years, and and making kind of minor adjustments through the previous season for that, so that they were not put in ridiculous situations this off season where they needed Seattle to come in and bail them out. Uh, I just think that part of it comes down to the you know the opportunities were not necessarily there for Seattle to take advantage of, and if the opportunities
0: aren't there, they, they can't you know, you can't manifest those yourself. Right. And I don't think they were the same opportunities that Vegas had uh, because there were GMs that were just tripping all over themselves to try and protect a certain player. I don't think you had that. Uh, But what you did have is the flat cap, which is a different... I know you addressed that teams maybe maneuvered a little bit so they weren't in such terrible situations, but there were those situations out there. And instead, you had the Kraken looking like they had almost no interest in taking advantage of that, while the Coyotes made a bunch Mm -hmm. of great deals and and stockpiled assets. And you look at the Kraken, you know, they have, you know, seven plus million in cap space that's not doing anything right now and I think could have gotten them some assets. And who knows, maybe there were some players that you target that had really negative value at the time that have turned it around this season and you just have to rely on your scouting and your analytics, whatever it is, to target those players. I look at like a Vladimir Tarasenko um, Mm -hmm. who probably had negative value at the expansion draft uh and and you look at the help that a goal scorer like that could have given you know could give to the team given that he's had this resurgence and the cap wouldn't have been a problem um you know you look at like a Shane Goss despair which I know it's a longer contract you've really got to think right. long and hard about that but he had assets attached right you know that they could have done Max Domi for one year like I, there's mm-hmm. there's zero risk to that really um so, so I think there were some moves that could have been made there.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think the, I think the one thing that maybe Seattle had to consider that Arizona didn't so much was it's your first year, new building. You you want the fan base to get excited. Is the fan base going to be excited because you took on a bunch of bad contracts and guys like Louis Erickson and Andrew Ladd, who, you know what I mean? And, and that's
0: who they're watching year one. Uh,
1: I I think I'm not saying
0: they should make as many of those moves. just one or two not you know Arizona makes five or six and completely does that but you know those moves were out there and certainly making one of them I mean it doesn't make your team any worse just Mm -hmm. using that cap space to get an asset you know just on top heck wave the guy you know whatever but get the asset Um, so that's that's kind of more you know what I'm getting at but I have a question for you here Dylan Mm -hmm. because I, I like that your take on the Vegas expansion draft and kind of one of the reasons they did so well that I've heard you say in the past, and that's that they really went at it heavily from a scouting perspective. I mean, they had guys within the organization that had scouted, you know, the furthest reaches of the league to such a great extent, guys that really knew just about everyone around the league. And so they were better able to identify these depth guys that maybe just kind of needed a bigger role, more Mm -hmm. opportunity because that's really what led to their success. Finding the William Carlson's, the Marcia, the Smith's these undervalued players. And I don't know that like the analytics are a reason that the Kraken necessarily didn't, but they certainly seem to approach it more from a numbers perspective Mm -hmm. than a scouting perspective the Vegas kind of had more of an old school scouting perspective Mm -hmm. I'm interested you know now that we've kind of have these 30 games of hindsight on the expansion draft you know what do you think of the difference of the way that it was handled by Vegas versus Seattle in that respect
1: yeah no that that is an interesting thing that yes I I have talked about that before and I don't know why I didn't equate it to the difference here before Uh, but you do bring up yeah you do you do bring up a really good point because I do think that's how Vegas was able to find those guys. You know, Carlson maybe less so like that was just so ridiculous what he was able to do year one. But March or so, like anybody who watched Florida at that time knew that March or so was a player perfectly capable of handling a top six role that he was just not going to get in Florida. And and that he was you could give him a contract and he was gonna live up to that contract. He just you just could see it watching him play. Um You could see it with Shea Theodore in Anaheim, who was not getting top roles just because of how deep the Ducks were defensively. But the times he was getting opportunities, you could tell this guy is amazing. We need to figure out a way of getting him and we'll leverage whatever we have to do. If we have to take Clayton Stoner to do it, (laughs) we will do it. And we'll end up with the best player, like arguably a better player than was even going to be available to us if we took Jakob Silverberg. Silverberg, right? And yep. and so I think that's where McPhee and those guys in Vegas kind of handled the draft a little differently is that, yes, they identified very much the players they thought were going to be the most successful players because they just thought they were the best players just because they passed the eye test. They could see the potential there. They could see that when there were injuries in these other organizations and these guys had to step into bigger roles, that they could handle it. But maybe that organization isn't obviously valuing them in that role because they're not always there, right? It took an injury for them to be in that situation. I do not think the Kraken looked at it as much that way. Granted, again, hard, you've got COVID-shortened season, you've got different things going on all over the place maybe that factors into it but yes i do think that they took a much more analytics approach which in general i'm in favor of but when it comes to an expansion draft you then have to somehow quantify and put into perspective every player's and you know personal analytics within then their team their you know their team's success and the system that that team is playing and how how much of those numbers you think are going to translate outside of it and that's where you really need you know traditional scouting to see some of these guys right you and i talked a lot about mason appleton all year we knew mm-hmm. mason appleton his style is going to play kind of anywhere just given who he is but You know, not everybody has been like that. And and I think that that is where, you know, maybe, yes, the over reliance on analytics at the expansion draft was potentially a problem. Uh, It's also, you know, so I guess let's stick with that theme and let's talk about maybe some of the players we think are kind of regressing from where they were last year just because of the change in scenery. And the change of system, because I do think that that applies to some of the players that the Kraken did end up taking. I think the poster child for this is uh, Alexander Winberg. Absolutely. Like his, his analytics were fantastic last year. He was, and, and really his counting stats were good too last year. Um, and he passed the eye test to an extent, maybe not as much as a Marsh or so did back in the day. Um, but I think that a lot of it just had to do with he was playing on a really, really good Florida team that, and I know he wasn't technically an expansion draft pick. Okay. But it, it still applies because I do think that they used analytics when it came to the free agents too. Um, but I, I think that him being out of that Florida system, like that Florida system was kind of built perfectly for him and his role within it. Francis said he wanted him to be in a top six role here, and I just
0: don't know that he is a top six center. It sure doesn't look like it. And when you're in a on the Florida team like that, where there's so much talent around you, the type of player Wenberg is, you know, he's a distributor, as we've seen. Mm-hmm. He's a playmaker. He he thinks the game in a certain way to try and maximize the finishing ability of the players around him. And right. when you put him with good finishers around him, that's where he's gonna thrive. And with this Kraken team, there just really isn't that. I mean, and and certainly they're trying to play him with guys that have a lot of, you know, creativity like a Marcus Johansson or, mm-hmm. you know, or like a Yonos Donskoy, but it at the end of the day, it's just kind of more limited than what that Florida team had around him. And it's just not the best environment to best utilize his skills.
1: Yeah, exactly. It he is more of a complimentary piece. And in Seattle, given that, you know, teams don't just have forty goal scoring wingers available to expansion teams, Seattle wasn't gonna have access to the kind of finishers or guys higher in the lineup that's gonna take maybe some of the you know defensive pressure off somebody like Wenberg. So again, hindsight is twenty twenty. It's a lot easier to say it now after everything's gone down. But yes, that was You know, Wenberg to me is the guy that kind of stands out as, you know, the analytics and everything made him seem like a slam dunk. And yet here we are. It's 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 kind of a problem. And I think that applies to some of the defensemen, too. Although I think some of the issues the defensemen have are separate from things that would show up analytically. Um, But, you know, certainly when it comes to goaltending, how much do we think is just regression from being out of certain situations? Obviously. I don't think either of us think Grubauer and Drieger is as bad
0: as the numbers are for this year. and No, certainly not. This is not the goalies that they are just long term. I mean, you know, certainly the Grubauer sample size shows you that. It's clear. Yeah, uh, But yeah, being taken out of a situation that he'd gotten used to, it can be jarring, especially for a guy who relies on the mental side of the game so much, you know, as much as Grubauer does, you know, mm-hmm. it, it can be a tough transition.
1: Right, and just the style that Colorado was playing in front of him. Is yep. very different than what the Kraken have going on here, oh, for sure. and and so there, it's not unusual to expect some regression, and, and now obviously this has been extreme and and unsustainably bad. I would I I keep saying,
0: and yet we keep continuing it. Yeah, very few goalies in you know the last ten years have sustained this kind of bad play, uh for for very long. You know, at yeah,
1: least
0: without just being out of the league at a certain point. <laughs> right.
1: Uh, but I do think the same applies to Drieger, too, coming over from Florida. Again, Florida is, was built as a very different team. Uh, they are kind of, uh, you know, where we've, we've got aggressive kind of defensemen, and you're going to see a lot of long shots, and, and you're going to see them coming, and you're going to be able to make that save, you know, and that is not how the Kraken have been playing. Kraken defensemen come in really tight to the crease or they're behind the crease. <laughs> and yep. and it puts it's putting a lot of pressure on these goaltenders to step up and make huge saves, like big time saves, and those were not the situations that these goaltenders came from before. And so I think there are goaltenders that can handle that and like that, but but these were not necessarily those kinds of guys. So I think that's where some of this stuff comes in into play a little bit more. Um but yes, so that's that's there's that out of the way. So now, as kind of the last question before we get on to, you know, where we go from here. This is something I've just kind of finally came to me as watching these last couple of games. Are the Kraken just, you know, the players maybe not like the brightest when it comes to hockey sense? And I know it sounds bad. I do not want this to be taken out of contest to be calling them dumb or not smart. But when it comes to, on ice vision, uh quick thinking like like playmaking sense, hockey sense. In the most, you know, literal interpretation of it is this just a team of guys that that don't necessarily have a lot of that. And there are tons and tons of players around the league some of which that are very very good that don't have a lot of hockey sense. It's it's totally fine. You can get by based on pure skill if you're put into a situation where that's all you have to focus on. Um, You could argue that to some extent, guys like even an Alexander Ovechkin earlier in his career didn't have a lot of like team hockey sense around him. Uh, He has developed it over the course of his career. We see that very much so now. And it's and it's helped him a lot as he's gotten older physically. Um, But just the idea that he was just going to shoot a thousand times. And that's how he was going to score goals. And he was just going to run over people to get into a shooting lane and shoot and score a goal. Like, that was all he was doing. He was so talented, it didn't matter. But but that's kind of what I mean is, are some of these guys just like, this is how I play, and so I'm just going to play that way. And then when you're put into certain situations, it doesn't quite come of it. And I think the perfect example is... Uh, kind of some of the stuff we've seen from Lazan, but really the play from Will Borgen last night on the first goal for Vancouver, where he just clears the puck kind of blindly in a hurry, even though no one's really pressuring him out of the corner. And he just throws it right up the middle, right into right on like tape to tape to a Canucks <laughs> player who, of course, shoots and scores from a high danger standpoint, rather than you know maybe slowing it down or thinking, I don't know what's behind me. Because no one does, right? We don't have eyes in the back of our head. So I'm going to take the safe play, and I'm going to throw it along the boards. And even if it's a Canuck that that, that's there along the boards, at least they're going to be like out of the way, and they're going to have to take a sec to collect it off the boards, right? Mm
0: -hmm. And everyone around can deal with it. We'll have time to deal with it.
1: Exactly. Live to live to
0: fight another day
1: here. Exactly. Rather than trying to make something happen, and so we've noticed that offensively too, guys are trying to make passes when they have open shooting lanes. Uh, You know what I mean? Like there are opportunities that, that are around for a lot of Kraken players that are not being taken. And so I'm wondering, trying to think back and you can maybe help me with this RJ, was that the case for these guys in their previous spots? And it just so happened that the Kraken drafted like 30 guys that were just kind (laughs) of more one dimensional players and thinkers Rather, And that's, a, I guess, a better way than saying that they're not smart hockey sense-wise. Is just that they're one-dimensional thinkers. Um, that's a nice euphemism there. Yeah, I know. It's, it's still not great. Like I said, there's no good way of saying any of this, but I hope that the point is coming across and it's not too terrible.
0: No, I, I get what you're saying. And it's, it's an interesting question, certainly, because we've seen kind of so many examples of this up and down the lineup, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, you talk about Borgen's turnover, and... You know, that's the kind of thing you teach squirts, right? Like, mm-hmm. Haxtell's not in ear saying, okay, if you, you know, if if you get pressured here, just throw it up the middle and, you know, just something will happen. You know what I mean? that, He's not being coached that way at any level. He's never been coached that way. Um, you know, it's just kind of an instinct thing and in where you just have to let that hockey IQ take over. And you know, looking at the whole season, it hasn't just been Will Borgen. By the way, you know, mm-hmm. it's been a lot of guys. Mm-hmm. You know, defense and forwards. You know, you talk about passing up shots that you should take. It, ha- you know, Winberg is obviously the probably the first guy you think <laughs> of. You know, when you talk about that, and you know, you could also make the case that was what it was in those previous destinations back to yes. Columbus. That was the issue with him. But it hasn't just been him either. You know, there have been other guys doing that Jordan too. Jordan Eberle at times. Which is, you know, just baffling knowing, you know, yeah. the kind of skill set that he has and, and what he's capable of doing as far as scoring goals, you know, when he's on, when he's shooting, when he's feeling confident, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and that, that knowing what's possible. So it's an interesting question because we've seen it just so many times. I think part of it is that, um, you know, maybe these guys are coming from systems where you mentioned the types of coaches. We talked about the types of coaches. And when you have a development coach, yes, you can work with a guy on an individual level, like a Wenberg, and, you know, get the best out of his playmaking ability or Eberly and get the best, you know, out of his, you know, shooting, scoring ability, that sort of thing. But at the end of the day, you know, they're that's the individual level. At a certain point, they've got to make those decisions when they're on the ice mm-hmm. and The system, you know, for a development coach, it puts a lot of that decision-making on a player. It's not so much about putting them in the spot where they're going to kind of have only one option to do, you know, what they're supposed to do. Um, A lot of it is, you know, leaving the players to decide, okay, what am I doing in this you know, position? Gives them a lot of freedom, but there's the downside to that as well when, you know, if they're not best suited to making those decisions with the freedom, then then there's the downside. I think of an Eberly coming from like a Barry Trotz, you know, yes. type system where <laughs> total opposite, right? Yeah. You know, you know exactly where you stand in the system. You know exactly what you need to do because you've been told that mm-hmm. um, and you don't have to think about it because you know where you stand. So, you know, it's a difference there for sure.
1: Yeah. And I think that's a really kind of good way of, of thinking about it and, and bringing it up. Uh, the idea of having that kind of creative freedom and really it's they have most of these guys have probably never had that all through you know growing up and, and developing and you know I said ideally you want developmental coaches in places like college and in the major juniors and all that stuff but the bottom line is those have all become big businesses where winning is ultimately the thing that matters the most and so they have not always prioritized themselves developing players so it is entirely possible that you could have players like a Jordan Eberle who at 31 years old has never been in a system where he's been told to just go out there and make plays. You know what I mean? Like his whole thing is, Hey kid, you've got a wicked shot. We're going to always set you up so that you just have to take the shot. And, and you know, so it's not, I don't want to put it it helps with my analogy of just saying that they they don't have great hockey sets because it, it does put it around of they've never been in this situation. And and when you put guys in situations they're not used to, yes, you cannot expect great results, certainly right away. Uh, it takes time. And it is an interesting concept to just kind of ponder. And um, I, I think it's something that, you know, just bringing it up, both for us and for everybody else, I think we might start seeing that and picking up on it some uh, while watching these games and again it does go back around to was that maybe then the best coaching style for an expansion team where maybe the best bet is to just kind of plug and play these guys because Mm -hmm. that's you know they're they're an island of misfit toys and certainly this is where having no off season together is certainly going to damage this team Because you need guys, if if you want people to be creative, they have to know where, you know, their line mates like to be like you have to have that familiarity before you can be um, kind of, you know, competitive and 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 play that way where you're you're kind of playing like a Sidney Crosby or a Connor McDavid, where you can just kind of have the freedom to make whatever play you think is is available to you because you need to trust that your teammate's going to be where you think they're going to be or where they want to be and i think that's why you end up with guys like Sidney crosby playing with chris kunitz and pascal dupuy like who would ever think that but it's they they thought the same way they had that same kind of on the fly creative instincts that crosby had and so it worked um, yes. And and I think that's what's missing here for the Kraken is that maybe they don't have enough guys like that. Yanni Gord is that way. We're seeing that. And we're seeing that now with the current line mates he has in Cali Yarncroke and Colin Blackwell. Mm-hmm. Every shift they have looks completely different because they are all taking what the defense is leaving available to them. And they're all working cohesively like they're all seeing the same thing and they're all going to where they know they can best take advantage of it. And because they all think the same way and they see it the same way, that's why you're seeing, um, you know, their passes are the only passes that don't seem to go to nowhere, right? Like (laughs) their passes are the ones that are working. They're taking shots when they have net front presence. And so the goalie is screened and the shots are going in. You're seeing that from that line and you're not seeing it from the other ones.
0: Yeah. And that's the upside of having that freedom that, you know, to be creative there when you have three guys that are all pretty like-minded about how they Mm -hmm. like to play all on the same page. You know, you can, that's how you create lines that are greater than the sum of their parts. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're talking about Crosby with Dupuis and Kunitz, you know, that's how you do that. So there's the upside, but there's a pretty big downside as well.
1: Yeah. So uh, I think that was a, you you had the missing piece that I was kind of missing there. Thank you very much for that, RJ. Uh, Good, good, good on you. All right. So now the big question, RJ, where do we go from here? got 10 I mean, wins in like 33 games
0: playoffs still I, I don't think so. It's certainly looking less and less likely. I don't know about you but weirdly um, you know the game that that the um, the game that did it for me was uh, you know two games ago like the flyers game it, it looked you know fairly competitive you know but what what did it for me you know it was just that next game against Calgary where it all kind of fell apart. And I'm really just kind of looking forward now, you know, I, I don't think playoffs are realistic at that point. I've tried to hold off on that as long as I can, you know, because we've seen with the Canucks, you can always just get hot and kind of get back in the race. There's still a lot of season left. But I, I don't know. What? How are you feeling about
1: this? No, I'm with you. And I think the Calgary game kind of did it. And then this last game was just like the, you know, OK, if you really weren't seeing the writing on the wall, you you kind of have to now. And that is that, yes, this team, barring a, a miracle run, is probably not making the playoffs, not going to be close to making the playoffs. Um, I mean, what is it, 10, 10 points now? Nine or 10 points yeah. at, back from from being second to last <laughs> in your division. Seventh in your yeah. division. You're double-digit points-wise. You're five games back of being seventh in the division. That, to me, is, is the most damning and the most, um, you know, uncomfortable reality that has to be faced is just that that is where you're at and so I think um yeah I'm kind of I'm kind of at the point where yes I'm I'm probably like you I'm looking forward to the offseason I'm I'm starting these scouting reports for these top draft prospects looks mm-hmm. like we're gonna get one of them one of the good ones hopefully and um it you know certainly it seems like the post-game live chats have been there for now uh, a little while
0: <laughs> oh yeah yeah, for sure. And again, we we've, we've been trying to hold off on this because we know it's not over. Mm-hmm. It's just you've got to start seeing those signs that that leads you to believe the turnaround can happen in time. Yeah. And and we're just not seeing them. And and we've you know we we've got to play it straight with all of you. We're not going to just you know kind of yeah. have the blinders on. You know, we we got to tell you what we're seeing, and, and this is it.
1: Yeah, I, I mean it's it's again crazy. There's 49 games left. Yeah, not even <laughs> halfway through the season. I, But but when you have the coach coming out and saying basically that that the list of things that need to be worked on and improved in order to be competitive and and win is so long that something like giving up goals less than a minute after you score on three consecutive games is like way down there. That kind of tells you even where the team is at at this point. And so I think it's it's fair for for all of us to kind of be there, too. Uh, so okay. as far as specific steps on where we go from here, obviously the next most important thing becomes the trade deadline. You and I have talked numerous times about, you know, kind of what we think is going to happen. You want to just kind of bring it up once again, real quick. Yeah.
0: I mean, just to recap, because we've gotten these questions a lot, because as it shows the post game chat's been there for a while, mm-hmm. um, but, you know, basically you're going to be looking to trade guys on expiring contracts, guys who you don't view as part of the long-term core, for draft picks and prospects, and I think mostly draft picks. Yeah. Uh, Just given given how light they are on, you know, the Kraken are on draft picks, and they don't have that whole backlog of prospects. That's probably what we're going to see. Um, Certainly not in position to add anything. Um, Yeah, that, that's probably what we're going to see. Yeah, and then really after that, there isn't much
1: to, as far as the rest of the season goes, unfortunately. You have some stuff to look forward to, such as like when Michigan season's up, I do think that, you know, certainly if you're out of it, I think it really benefits calling up Beneers, going ahead and burning that year off his entry-level contract, but getting him around the team, get him used to the NHL lifestyle, get him used to the speed of the game, all of that, I think. And I think that'll be something fun for us to look forward to. i um, not sure that any other prospects are really going to, you know, go through that. I don't know that you're going to see a lot of, you know, okay, we're going to, bump some of the younger guys up the lineup so to speak like that's not really
0: there for this kind of team Um, well i mean one thing i think that could happen with the trade deadline is you know you have a couple guys that get moved that maybe that just mm -hmm. kind of does it you're not going to have these eight defensemen always competing for you know if giordano gets moved that means you know you're seeing one more of flurry borgen or lozano the lineup every night and Mm -hmm. you know and that could be good for their development for sure um otherwise it's just talking like contracts but my guess is they're
1: not Usually players don't want to go through contract negotiation mid season. Maybe yep. that changes if the team is really like, Okay, we're just completely out of it. So you don't you're not as worried about having that distraction. But my guess is we're not gonna see any movement on like a McCann extension until the actual off season hits, unfortunately. Yeah. Agreed. But uh, there will be plenty for us to discuss as it comes to all that kind of armchair GM stuff that we can do in a future podcast because this one is nearing its end. A uh, lot of lot of expiring contracts at the end of this year. It should be fun to really yep. dig into that as as we we get towards the end. But we're going to finish on, you know, a, a question that was asked the other night in one of the postgame lives and I think it's a good question and it's kind of something nice and fun that we can end what has otherwise been maybe a little bit of a downer podcast. Uh and that was from uh one of our viewers, Braun. Always appreciate having Braun in chat. And he asked kind of how's it been being a reporter? like how's it been being media people through all this and I'll give you you know kind of the floor cuz you've obviously been around a lot more of it than
0: I have from a you know reporting standpoint so uh, how's it been RJ <laughs> well it's it's definitely a new experience you know for both of us and you know you you've been around it a little bit too and mm-hmm. you came up to visit um but uh, I wasn't really sure what to expect um again I've never done this before and I guess the first real takeaway is just how much uh, really knowledge you get about kind of the the feel of the team, what's going on, because I was the type of fan, you know, when I was growing up that was always super plugged into, you know, what my team do, I'd watch every game, i do, you know, all that stuff. And... You know, but I didn't realize kind of how much I still missed. You know, I guess that happened at practice every day. You know, things they were working on. I didn't always watch all the you know all the media availabilities and stuff. You know, I didn't I didn't see kind of how the players were behind the scenes. You know, joking around and stuff. They have their own personalities and all that stuff. So I, I guess it was cool to see. You know, just all those little things that really give you a kind of a complete feel for where everything is at. Um, I certainly wasn't sure what to what to expect as far as kind of the people around that i'd be working with every day and certainly in dealing with someone like me who was new to this and was maybe from a bit more non-traditional media um and that was might have been the biggest pleasant surprise because everyone that that i've worked with has been super nice and um you know willing to help me out with things you know the first few days i just kind of flat out asked for advice as far as doing this. Like I've never done this before. got any advice for someone new. Uh, And you know, everyone I talked to was, was very helpful with that and and provided some good advice as well. Um, So, you know, like shout out to, to Ryan Clark from the athletic, you know, Marissa from the Seattle times, you know um, the guys from sound of hockey, you know, they were all, you know, just great and supportive with that too. Um, And as far as I guess the routine, you know, kind of doing what I, what I do now, um, it's. Uh, I was wondering if it's something I'd kind of get sick of. You know, you never know until you kind of go mm-hmm. into it. But I really do love um, just kind of doing the whole you know practices, morning skate, game thing. It's it's a nice routine. It's certainly not traditional work hours. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> you know, you, you find yourself kind of working. You know, from you know five p.m. till midnight some nights, or you know beyond that usually. Um, you know, monitoring things in the morning. It's definitely different, but. I like that. I think it, it works well for kind of the way I am, uh, where I'm not always, you know, the most traditional type of, of, you know, person as far as getting work done. Um, you know, just the way I like to do, you know, I like to really focus for, for a long time or, you know, and then kind of, uh, relax a bit, but it's, it's been nice. Um, it's great having kind of brand new facilities to go to every day too. Climate Project Arena is great. Um you know, Cracking Community Iceplex is great. Um I guess just let's see the little things that you might be interested. In. They keep us really well fed. You know, at the games they've got some good food out there, um which which is nice. Um I, it's something that that I think the media people tend to talk about a lot, you know, is, is the food that's there and why not? Like you would too. Mm-hmm. Um Yeah, I mean, I don't know any any kind of follow-ups there. What do, what do you think, Dylan?
1: Yeah, I mean, just getting to go to the games is pretty awesome. Like, you got a great yeah. seat to every home game, which is mm-hmm. a- amazing. And, and I think uh, that's something that, you know, all of us that aren't getting that every single game are very envious of. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's it's been interesting also just the different the different way of dealing with the team, because really my only experience has been from like actually being a part of it, right? Being a scout and being on that side of it. So I'm communicating with the coach and the GM and the assistant GM just, you know, well, usually through email because I wasn't in Portland all the time, obviously. But, But just when you are around and at, you know, you're meeting them at combines and stuff and you're in your little group pocket thing moving around as as every all the teams kind of do that individually it's it's very different cuz you're you're like on the inside right and and here when you deal with members of the team whether it be players or coaches or whatever it's very much like it's, it's, it's just such a different relationship and the way they talk to you and the way you address them is so different. So that, that to me was something that was kind of like, okay, I got to get used to this standpoint, being more professional, less casual, just because that's what I was used to. Um, But at the same time, there is, there is more of an understanding there than I think I thought of before. And, and I don't know why I didn't think that there wouldn't be, but players, coaches, they understand that your job is to ask them these questions, whether they want to be asked that question or not, right? Like all that stuff. And and that there is, to some extent, those kinds of personal relationships we've we've seen. Uh, you know, Maybe we haven't necessarily had the time to develop them with anybody, but we've seen some of the longer term reporters or the people around hockey, certainly some of the visiting beat writers and with their teams that they cover, right, that they're around a lot you see that that kind of more casual and and personal friendship kind of thing going on and um i guess i was a little surprised to see that at first but i but pleasantly surprised because i do think that that's important and i do think that it's one of those things that when the media and the team can work kind of together in that and understand where each other's coming from then both sides can kind of get what they want out of the mm-hmm. other a lot more easy easier. And, um, and I think the Kraken have been doing a good job with that. And so I think, I think that's one of the big things that stood out to me was just how. Yeah, absolutely. You make
0: a good point there too. And, you know, working with, with the people involved with the Kraken and their, you know, and their media team and their PR team, like um, yeah, exactly. When there's that, that working together, it it just works a lot better, you know, for both sides and just kind of having that communication and understanding, you know, kind of where everyone's at, Mm -hmm. where certainly, Again, I, this is the first time doing this, but from everything I've heard from other people who have covered other teams or other teams or whatever, it's this is not necessarily the case at most places. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, heck, even allowing you know a more non traditional outlet like us, mm-hmm. you know, to do what we do, um, you know, that's that's you know some very progressive thinking on their part, and um, and, and I think it makes you know everyone better for it. Uh, yeah. But they've been great in that regard as well. Yeah, for sure. So. That's been our experience through all this
1: so far uh, still yeah. still encountering new situations as it goes on. Oh for uh, sure but it's but it's keeping things fresh and exciting and uh, it's just been such a wild ride and really could not do it without everybody who's supported us along the way both in our personal lives our families all that kind of stuff and then of course everybody who's you know been checking out the website listening to podcasts like this one, joining us on the post game lives, uh, following us on Twitter and stuff. Right. I mean, you talk about them kind of taking us in as a non-traditional media outlet. That was really because so many people took to us and they they gave us the numbers. Yeah. They get, you guys gave us the numbers that we could go to the team and kind of be like, well, look, this is our reach. This is the stuff we're doing. And people seem to be responding to it. And they looked at that and they said, okay, we think there's something there. And, we're going to, you know, move forward with this uh, kind of relationship. And, and that's really awesome. And like I said, that does not happen without everybody else kind of helping us out there. So, uh, you know, say it all the time, but you know, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I know that it sounds super enthusiastic, but really thank you so much, everybody who's uh, helped us out along the way and, and, you know, just supported us in general, even if it's simply by following us on Twitter, it's, it's helped us out uh, immensely and uh, we appreciate all the love, but that is going to do it for this episode of the Emerald city hockey podcast. Quick reminders, Patreon, gonna be starting those monthly scouting report videos uh, and then this month's live streams are going to be for the colorado game january 10th and that's at 6 p.m and then january 30th against the rangers and that is 10 a.m so a nice fun uh, kind of pseudo morning game we can all have brunch it'll be great it's gonna be great and uh and, and then we're going to get back to the Patreon exclusive podcast later this week as well. Uh, last week just didn't quite work timing wise. Cause all those games jam packed together in just a couple days when we would normally record and put it out and it just wasn't working for us, but we're going to get back to that as well. And that is, you know, weekly now. So yep. that's something else Looking to look forward, forward to that. To. Yeah. So that's it for, uh, RJ and I, um, Thanks so much for joining us once again, and we will see you next time.